electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Hi, everybody. I'm Kelly Evans. And ahead this hour, stocks are surging after a lighter-than-expected inflation report. That's the good news. The bad news is we're seeing the weakest productivity growth for any expansion in post-war history. So what does it all mean for the economy and for your money in this market? We'll discuss. The discussion's already started. Plus, Carter Worth called the top for energy back in May right here when he went short the XLE and long the broader market. That bet has certainly paid off. He's closing that position today. We ask him where he's putting that money next. And Disney, Bumble, Canada Goose, all getting ready to report earnings. We'll get you all set up for that in today's earnings exchange. But first, let's get the read on these markets. Dom Chu has the latest numbers. Mice, bees, and geese. I like the way that you tease the earnings exchange over there. So anyway, as Kelly pointed out, it's been a very strong day for the markets overall. Maybe no surprise, it kind of gives you an idea that the path of least resistance for a lot of the bulls out there has been towards the upside. If they could find any positive news on that inflation front, and they got a little bit of that today, it's still very bad, pervasively bad inflation in America. But maybe this is the first sign of things getting a little bit better. For that reason, the Nasdaq Composite is your real outperformer, up nearly 300 points, 2.5% gains there, tilting towards the highs of the session right now. Even the S&P 500 almost reclaiming 4,200. It did at one point today, up about 75 points, nearly 2% gains there, 1.5% gains there for the Dow Industrials, 33,248. If you are looking for a place that you can see in the market that's really reacting to some of that softer-than-expected inflation data, it has to be in consumer-oriented companies that could benefit if people have more spending power if they're not spending so much on things like gas and food. Look at Norwegian Cruise Lines. The best performing stock in the S&P today, it's up 13%. Discover Financial on the consumer spending side, credit card issuers, that sort of thing, up about 6.5%. Etsy and Target on the direct retail side, up 45 to 6% there. And then Darden Restaurants, up 3.5% as well. If people spend less on certain things, they can maybe go out and eat more, travel more, that sort of thing. So keep an eye on those consumer names. And then interest rates. That was the real sign that things may be shifting a little in the inflation narrative. This is an intraday chart. Right around here was 2.8% right before the inflation numbers came out. It got as low as 2.67% on the heels of that inflation data. It's been steadily moving a little bit higher throughout the course of the day. Still, though, 2.76% is a sign, perhaps, that interest rates could be calming a little bit. And by the way, Kelly... If interest rates are generally viewed as going a little bit lower, those expectations a little bit less aggressive, check out those technology and growth stocks. Many of them you'll find out, Kelly, are catching a bid in today's trade. Netflix, Amazon, Meta, you name them. Yep. They all send things back. Have been since July. Dom, thank you very much. Inflation coming in lighter than expected. The headline CPI unchanged in July from June due to a sharp drop in energy prices. Year-on-year, consumer prices still 8.5% up, a high level. But does the slight easing in inflation signal a smaller rate hike next month? Former Treasury Secretary Larry Summers just said he doesn't think so. Listen. I think it would be a mistake for anyone to radically revise their view of the situation based on uh, these numbers. 
Uh, this reports a lot like the report in March, which was followed by uh, very discouraging reports afterwards, making the optimists uh, from March uh, look, uh, look wrong uh, several months later. Joining Meow, 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 uh, to react and discuss, Michael Darda is chief economist and chief market strategist at MKM Partners. Also with us is CNBC senior economics reporter Steve Leisman. Welcome to both of you, Mike. Just a knee-jerk response to that. I imagine you, you on some level, agree with Larry, or, or no? Or do you think? I mean, do you think that these pressures are going to really subside this time? I think we can look forward to headline CPI inflation coming off the boil in the second half here. We've seen a big slide in energy prices. Commodity prices are down very sharply. Inflation expectations in the bond market have also come down. And there are signs of economic slowing. You know, we've had a very strong labor market, obviously, but you've reported on job, first-time jobless claims moving up. And so I think the combination of inflation easing and growth slowing in the second half will allow the Fed to slow the pace of hikes. They're not going to stop and then you know, reverse course and start cutting rates this year unless something totally out of the blue and catastrophic happens. But I do think they are going to slow the pace of hikes. And I think that you know, the market is sniffing that out here. Well, Steve, what, what would you add? I mean, to hear a comment like that from Larry Summers, he's become one of the more influential, hawkish voices out there. Do you think it would change the Fed's mind about possibly sticking with a 75, for instance, if we can yeah. assume that 50 is now the, Larry, the likeliest Larry outcome? An Larry anchors the hawkish wing of the, de of the debate. <laughs> I would point out to Larry, it's not a lot like March um, because it's 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 July and, and the rate hikes are quite a bit higher. The Fed has embarked on quantitative tightening. Uh, as Mike said, the economy has slowed. Um, and so I think there's a lot of differences. Um, you've had uh, a chance for some of the supply chain issues to ease. And I am uh, contrary to almost the entire economics universe in believing that Putting people back to work is not inflationary. I believe it's deflationary or disinflationary. And I think that one of the things that happens when we put people back to work is we solve supply chain problems. So, um, and, and I think the mistake that Larry makes, with, with, with huge respect for him, because he's been, I mean, not quite a mentor, but I followed him over decades going back to Russia. But I think overlaying old 70s styles inflation anal analogies over a 2022 pandemic recovery is, an, is a mistake in terms of analogy. Here's the one, Mike, maybe you can weigh in on this because you just pointed out that after yesterday, we've tipped into negative territory on productivity for the last eight quarters, so the whole recovery. But what do you think that is, is going on? I mean, how much of the story is about high wages? How much of the story is about work from home? Can the GDP data even be trusted? Should we be using income instead? I mean, these are the questions underpinning what Steve just raised about the structure of the recovery we're seeing. Yeah, I think part of it could be the adverse supply side shocks that Steve mentioned. If those unwind, that should help. Part of it could be measurement difficulties. The productivity statistics are super volatile and notoriously um, challenged in terms of actually measuring underlying efficiency. So hopefully, fingers crossed, we start to see some better numbers. But you know, this eight quarter run with the last two negative readings uh, has a dishonorable distinction of being the weakest, uh, you know, for any recovery so far. So hopefully those numbers improve. If some of these temporary factors 
start to self-resolve, that, that certainly would help. And I want to hear, Steve, you have a, a very, it's nice, a glass yeah. half full kind of, uh, kind of story about this. Well, let me just say, whatever argument I have with Mike, he wins because his dog is so chill. <laughs> There's no way I could do this with my dog who needs to be on Ritalin or some other um, uh, uh, attention disorder uh, drug. But in any event, Mike wins that argument. But I don't understand how people can be upset or concerned about productivity when we have the same number of workers doing 4% real inflation-adjusted GDP. When I look at GDP per worker in this country, it has risen from $129,000 to $163,000. There are forces that are working against stellar productivity. The idea that we're going to be onshoring some production, that's probably not as productive. The idea that we're going to be uh, um, essentially doing something for security rather than for efficiency, um, deglobalization is not is not productivity. But in any event, um, at the moment, we have a huge well of productivity from the pandemic that we're working off because we're putting people back to work. But I am not worried about productivity right now. And Mike, what would you add to Mike, that? Mike, is that wrong? I just really need to know that. No, absolutely. And, and it also has implications for policy, right? You know, are, should the Fed be trying harder or not to boost GDP? What does it mean for real rates in the long run? Which type of government policy is even the right type here? You know, it's it's very uncertain on the productivity side, but I, I'm rooting for Steve's view because yes. that, that really is uh, how we raise the standard of living over time. That's the whole game. The Fed can control the demand side. They don't control the supply side. And so hopefully, as some of these adverse supply side shocks from the pandemic reverse, and they should eventually reverse over time, or at least, you know, uh, a good chunk of them will. We'll start to see better numbers there. But if we're pretty close to the trend of the last cycle, then about 4% nominal GDP growth would equate to about 2% inflation. If we're way below the last cycle, that does not put us in a good place. That means the Fed's going to have to aim for even lower nominal GDP growth to get inflation to stabilize around 2 So that's uncertain at the moment. Um, but I do think, you know, the Fed has made some progress on moving very rapidly. Over the last five months, they've moved policy rates, wh whether you're adjusting nominal or real. In a way, over five months, we haven't seen since the tightening cycle of the early 1980s. And so, you know, that mm -hmm. will have an influence with, with, a, with a bit of a lag. But the markets are looking forward. And you look at you know, these inflation expectations in the bond market coming down sharply, commodities rolling over, the dollar rallying. So we're going to get some better news on the headline inflation. Right. In half. And Larry's probably a little bit too pessimistic there, but he's had a good call. So it's hard not to put more chips on it. That's 100 percent right. He's had a good call. And I may be eating my words next month or several months. But let me just point out one thing, which is important to understand. When you do a goose egg on the headline inflation number, and you did 0.5% on wages, Americans got a raise. Finally. For the yeah. first time since September. Now, be fair, it, real wages are down 3% year on year. But if you look at the chart and you go back, you have to go back to September to the last time Americans got a raise. If we continue to print these kind of lower numbers than the wage numbers, then real spending standard of living will rise in that regard. I hope I don't have to eat my words two months from now. Well, and the stock market is telling you that maybe we can have a positive story, a little more positive one in the near term at least. Guys, thank you both. Pleasure. We appreciate it. All three of you, I should say, Michael Darda <laughs> and Steve Leisman. Let's get to Rick Santelli now. He's got the results of the 10-year auction. Rick, with all this going on, how'd it go? 
It went pretty well. I get graded it a B plus, a boy plus for demand. It straight up one Eastern. Let's go through it. 35 billion 10-year notes. Uh, the second leg, oh, three-year notes, of course, were yesterday. 2.755 is the auction yield, and it's a bit below where the one issued was trading. That's always a good sign. All the metrics were pretty good, uh, B+. Plus. And I think the, the most stellar feature of today and the 10-year note yield and the fact that there was so much buying that ended up coming into this auction is testament that not only the markets, but of course who's behind the message of the markets are investors. And investors have been a lot more correct, in my opinion, than many of the analysts and the economists. They have gone along with this move in equities where it's firmed up, and they've gone along with the move with regard to interest rates being well below some of their peak Closing yields from the 14th of June. Kelly, back to you. All right, a B plus, 275 on the 10-year. Rick, thank you very much, Rick Santelli. Coming up, ETFs focused on single stocks are splashing into the market. One name in particular getting a lot of attention despite being down 17% this year. We'll tell you what it is and what it means for investors. Plus, can Disney dispel the doubters? Will Bumble finally sting the short? And could Canada Goose cap off its longest weekly winning streak in nearly two years? It's all ahead on Earnings Exchange. As we head to break, here's a quick look at markets as we go. The Dow's up about 500 points, 1.5%, and it's the underperformer. The S&P up 2%, the NASDAQ 2.5%, the small caps 2.6%. Back in a moment. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back, everybody. Single stock ETFs. Single stock ETFs. What's the point? They're making a splash in the market today. Not everybody is thrilled about it either. Bob Bassani at the New York Stock Exchange with the details. Bob? Hello, Kelly. There is a wave of single stock ETFs descending on the marketplace. These are not your grandmother's ETFs that just invest in passive indexes like the S&P 500. Oh, no. These single stock ETFs allow investors to go both leverage long and to bet short against individual stocks. Now, there's currently single stock ETFs for Tesla, Apple, Nike, Pfizer, PayPal and NVIDIA. The most successful so far has been the Access Tesla Bear Daily ETF. This provides one and a quarter times inverse exposure to Tesla. Let me explain. If Tesla is down 1% on a daily basis, if it's down, this ETF will be up one and a quarter percent. It's the inverse. It's a short. But just yesterday, four Tesla ETFs launched, which provide various long and short exposures 
to Tesla. You can see them listed right here. Now, there may be hundreds more coming of other ETFs and other stocks as the ETF industry seeks to leverage the public's interest particularly in playing high-volatility stocks like Tesla. The advantages of these ETFs, well, there are some. You don't need a margin account, for example, to own them. And it's easier than actually going out and trying to short if that's what you want to do. But a lot of people in the business are not happy about this development because they pose far more risk than just owning an index. Single stock ETFs reset on a daily basis. Hard to get your head around this, but over time, you'll likely not get the return you might think if you hold it for days and certainly months. The fees are also high, over 1% in most cases, and they're just plain difficult to understand. All of which has led SEC Chair Gary Gensler to say that these kinds of complex products can present unique and potentially significant risks to investors across market sectors. And Kelly, this is kind of what happens when you get an ETF industry looking for new business opportunities on top of retail traders uh, post-COVID looking to uh, trade high volatility stocks. It's sort of a, a perfect little marriage of business needs and people looking for other uh, other, other things to do and to trade. Do you think it's predatory or does it level the playing field because it gives individual investors more access to the types of trades that a more sophisticated audience would typically have? Well, that's what the industry says. Well, we're, this is for sophisticated investors. They wave this magic wand saying it's sophisticated investors. But the truth is, it's really difficult uh, to make that distinction. You don't have to be an accredited investor to buy these. You can do, anybody can buy them. Uh, and it, no matter what you say, I've been doing this for years, it is really hard to explain the daily reset. They think you're going to get, if you're two times uh, uh, a stock, you, they think after a month, if it's up 2%, you're going to be up 4%. That doesn't happen. The daily reset makes it very difficult for people to actually track what's going on with these things. And as a result, it really should only be used by professionals, but we all know that's probably not going to happen. And some things are just going to blow up and we're going to have to explain that to people. It's fascinating. The timing, uh, the, the decision to move forward with it, everything. Bob, thank you very much, our Bob Bassani. Okay. Speaking of single stocks, my next guest is picking up some of the hardest hit names in the market this week, like Micron and AMD, both trading higher on the session, but AMD is down about 4% just since Monday. Let's bring in Kim Forrest. She's Chief Investment Officer at Boca Capital Partners. Kim, by the way, do you worry at all about the, the sort of single stock ETF thing Bob was just talking about? I I really do. And if anybody is out there listening, you have to sit down with a pencil and paper and watch how your earnings uh, disappear because of the single day reset. It is really difficult for people to understand. It's difficult for professionals to understand because you think you should get the difference between the two days where you bought and sold it. But that is not the case. And anything with inverse or leveraged, you should stay away from because it probably has this single day reset, which is just I'm, crazy to figure out. Yeah, and I'm a little surprised because this is an SEC, you know, it's a Democratic administration and, and Gary Gensler, and they're, you know, looking out for the little guy. They're, you know, obsessed with crypto and, and kind of doing the right thing there. But this feels like, I don't know, maybe there's a justification that I'm missing. I, I don't know. Or maybe this is even scarier. Maybe they don't know how it works either. <laughs> All right. Let's move off that topic and back to your, okay. uh, you can justify your stock picks. How about that? AMD yes. and Micron, what do we get spend for the chip makers? What do you think is going on here? What's the real story? Sure. So no doubt things like AMD and Micron have benefited from stay at home, work at home and all of that. 
So they're getting a one-two punch where people are not moving back into the office, which might predicate businesses refreshing their PCs, because we all use PCs if you use spreadsheets or Word documents, right? But so that is gone. And people at home are not buying them right now because they've already refreshed. So in the short term, these companies that have relied heavily on the PC market are just getting pummeled. And, you know, the gaming market as well for NVIDIA. But here's the thing. If you're going to hold this for three to five years, we are going to increase the amount of digitization even far and above what it is right now. And these are the companies that are going to make the chips. And it really is that simple of a story. What about, I'm just going just gonna to go there, what about Intel? I mean, are, 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 is a rising tide going to lift all ships here? And what about, you know, a boat that just got $50 billion of government uh, help? Yeah, well, as a taxpayer, I'm not jumping up and down about giving away free money because that's not free. It's our money. But I will say this, that it, it's, it is important to onshore some of these um, fab plants. Yeah. And it is entirely too concentrated in any one area of the world, especially Taiwan. I don't think anybody can argue with that. I do like Intel. I like the direction that Pat Gensler's going in. I think he has the corporate understanding of the company. And I think he has the chops to do it. And I'm for Intel. We're, we're all rooting for them. Let's put it that way. A <laughs> couple of other names here that jump out to you. Why UPS? Why Coke in this environment? Sure. So we're running a sector neutral strategy, which means we have exposure to all sectors in about the same proportion of CN, or as uh, S&P 500. But I really like those two in particular because they're really good at um, innovation and they put the shareholders first. So I'm looking at UPS, where they're firing some of their terrible um, customers, their money-losing customers, and who wouldn't love that? And Coke seems to have gone away from fizzy drinks, and I think that that's a really bold step for them, and they should be able to benefit. You know, Kim, there is a double-leveraged Coke ETF if you really feel strongly about it. Uh, don't do it to me. Don't. Kim, thanks for your time today. We appreciate it. Kim Forrest with Boca Capital Partners. Coming up, a behind-the-scenes look at how Goldman Sachs stumbled out of the gate with the launch of the Apple Card. We'll dig into the bank's growing pains there. And Elon Musk with a huge sale of Tesla shares, apparently in case he's forced to buy Twitter. What does it mean for both groups of shareholders? The fallout is ahead. As we head to break, here's a look at the 30 components of the Dow, the heat map with Boeing, Goldman, and Salesforce, your biggest gainers today. Merck, UNH, and J&J, &J, the healthcare trade that's been doing well, those are the only three losers. We're back after this. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. 
Welcome back, everybody. We're sitting near session highs, up 590. We're up 498, so 100 points off that level right now. The S&P up 2%, just over 4,200. The Nasdaq up 2.6%, undoing a lot of the damage we saw from the chips earlier in the week. And check out the home builders. Big theme here today, lower rates, definitely helping this group today with gains of about 4.5%. DR Horton, Pulte, and Lennar all on pace for their best day since July 1. These names are still only trading around four and a half times forward earnings. Crypto is also moving higher after the inflation print. Note the irony there. Crypto higher because inflation was lower. Liquidity story. Bitcoin back above 24,000, just below that level now. But that's been a key one to watch uh, for a lot of folks there. Ether is up 9%. Even Coinbase higher by 4%, even though last night it had that wider than expected loss and a revenue miss in its most recent quarter. And today marks seven years since Google announced the creation of the parent company known as Alphabet. Shares have more than tripled during that time, but they're still down 17% since January having their worst year since 2008. Let's get to Tyler Matheson now for a CNBC News update. Tyler. All right, Kelly, thank you very much. Uh, The deposition of former President Trump continues today, uh, but just before the session, he said he would refuse to answer any questions. In New York State's civil probe of his business, he invoked his Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination. Lawyers for the Attorney General's office in New York are expected to ask all of their questions anyway. And that could take several hours as the president uh, takes the fifth question after question. Uh, damage, uh, damage from explosions at a Russian airbase in Crimea appears to be worse than the Kremlin's public assessment of it. Officials there have declared a state of emergency and say dozens of homes and commercial buildings were damaged. A Ukrainian official is saying that the country's special forces and local resistance fighters are behind those blasts at an airbase. And parts of England and Wales will be under an extreme heat warning starting tomorrow and lasting through the weekend. Britain is struggling once again with high temperatures and a severe drought after the driest July since 1935 sparked wildfires and strained the nation's infrastructure. Tonight on the news with Shepard Smith, how schools across the country are trying to cope with a severe shortage of teachers. That's at 7 Eastern time. Hope you'll join us. Back to you, Kelly. Getting extreme. I'll see you soon. Tyler, thank you very much. Still ahead, what do these three companies all have in common? They're all on deck with results. They're all up at least 18% this quarter. And they all offer clues about the consumer. We've got the action, the story, and the trade on Disney, Bumble, and Canada Goose ahead in Earnings Exchange. Welcome back. It's time now for Earnings Exchange, where we've got the action, the story, and the trade on three names getting set to report results. Today, it's a bunch of consumer names, including the one Dow component reporting this week. And that's where we'll begin with Disney. It's up about 3% into today's report, but 40% off the highs as they struggle in streaming. Is sentiment starting to shift, though? Because Disney shares are up 16% in the past month. Julia Borston is here with the earnings story for us. And David Katz has our trades today. He is the CIO of Matrix Asset Advisors. Welcome. Welcome to both of you. Julia, what are we watching? Well, look, Disney is expected to show 23% growth in revenue and a 21% increase in earnings per share. And that is expected to be really driven by progress at the parks division. A lot of pent up demand for visits to the parks and spending at the parks. But there is another factor that's going to be very much in focus 
probably the real headline here, and that is Disney's streaming subscriber numbers. Disney Plus is expected to add 10 million subs in the quarter, and there's a lot of concern about whether they'll be able to do that given the decline we saw at Netflix in terms of their subscriber numbers. But there's also this question of whether they're on track long-term to hit the 2024 guidance of between 230 and 260 million subscribers. So that's a big factor in focus. And then, of course, also, Kelly, the advertising market. We've heard from the digital media players as well as the traditional media guys about how there is this ad recession. They're trying to sort it out how bad and how deep it could be. Um, so we'll be listening for that as well. And David, are you still a fan of the stock? I believe you were when it was uh, at or near the lows, uh, maybe going back a couple of weeks or months. How do you feel about it now? So short term, we don't have a great conviction. However, if you're looking at a six to 12 month time horizon, we do think the stock can be meaningfully higher. If the stock has a good earnings number and a good outlook today, we'd be very comfortable buying, even if it moves a few dollars higher, because we do think it will start to move significantly higher from there. All right. But I know what you're saying. Don't get too excited uh, in the next couple of hours. <laughs> Got to take a longer, longer term view here. Absolutely. This has been a very treacherous earnings season. So unless you have a great conviction about a company, we would not step in front of earnings, especially the day of. All right. With that caveat, let's move on to a couple even more volatile names like Bumble, which reports after the bell. It's up nearly 80 percent just since its last report. It's beaten revenue estimates five out of the last six times and has risen on three of the last four results. Julia, what's the story here, especially given match group struggles? The story here is investors are waiting to figure out if Bumble has the same challenges as Match does or whether it is managing some of these broader pressures that we're seeing in the consumer economy differently. And this all comes on the heels of Match not only disappointing results, but also giving a lot of warnings when they were looking at guidance. So for Bumble, the number to watch is not just revenue, which is expected to go up um, about 18 percent, but also that paying user base. Analysts expect the company to grow to over three million total paying users. And the question is whether or not we see some of those same issues that Match had. So Match warned that people are not starting to, to experiment with dating services in the same way that they did pre-pandemic. Are they able to draw new, year, new users and then get those users to pay? Are some of these inflationary pressures keeping people from maybe wanting to spend the money on this. And I wouldn't think David Bumble's a stock that you'd typically be interested in, but you're saying maybe in the long run, there's something to like here. Sure, it's a pretty expensive stock. So even though the stock is down for the last few years, it's still expensive and it's up 90% from the lows. Uh, if they have a good quarter and they keep the growth trajectory, we think for a growth investor, it's perfectly fine. If they have a weak quarter, it's been pretty volatile and we think that it's up a lot on positive expectations. So this one's going to move a lot tomorrow. We just don't have a sense which way. But if it moves to the upside, you think that actually gives you some long-term confirmation that it, that, you know, in other words, it, it tells you something about the fundamentals being intact? It, it does. It would mean that they're outpacing match and, and we would feel comfortable buying in a better environment for it. If they disappoint today, we think that it probably has significant downside from the initial day or two move. So uh, if, if bad numbers, we would not step in. All right, Julia, thank you. Our Julia Borson covering both of those names for us. As we turn now to Canada Goose, they report before the bell tomorrow morning. Hired today, it's up 9% this month, but it's still digging out of a big hole. The shares are down 40% this year. There's 16% short interest in the float, according to FactSet. And we bring in Courtney Reagan with the story on this one. China, 
a big theme here still, Court? Absolutely. China is still a big theme, but I don't think expectations are very high for that region, Kelly, as you can understand because of what's been going on with the sort of rolling lockdowns that the country has still continued to face with their zero COVID policy. So I don't think expectations are high for China. That being said, I think it's all in the commentary from Canada Goose about how the high-end consumer is holding up around the world. And I don't expect it to be disappointing, frankly. We've heard from Capri so far, LVMH and Caring so far, at least in recent weeks, when it comes to the high-end consumer. And none of those names are really seeing any signs of consumer slowdown. I would point to the real real as sort of one area of weakness for that higher-end consumer. But again, that's sort of a, a secondhand higher-end consumer. So that doesn't point out a lot of concern for Canada Goose for me. We know they do usually beat revenues. They usually beat their earnings expectations. But the shares can be very volatile in reaction. Still, Canada Goose, to your point, is digging out of a bit of a hole in its performance for the year, but has well performed, outperformed the S&P 500 since it last reported in May. So we'll see what it has to say, but really it's all about that high-end consumer, Kelly. And most of the time, it's not going to be inflation that hurts that consumer, but really more of a volatile equity market. And things have been a little bit more stable uh, lately in the equity markets, which I think does bode well for this high-end consumer. And you know, I know it's like 90s degrees in much of the country (laughs) right now, but pretty soon we're going to be buying these uh, big parkas. David, we'll give you the last word here. What do you think of the stock? We think it's a very powerful franchise, and it is at a reasonable valuation. So if they do well with the earnings again, we think that ultimately will recover a lot of its lost ground this year. So we'd be a buyer if they have good numbers, um, but we don't have any sort of conviction because there have been a lot of blow-ups on the apparel and retail side. So All don't right. step in front of this one as well. All right. Even though it's padded and cozy and downy. Uh, David Katz, Courtney Reagan, thank you both today. We really appreciate it. That does it for Earnings Exchange. Coming up, the Apple card was touted for its radical transparency and simplicity. But for issuer Goldman, it's been anything but. We'll dig into what some customers have called a complete nightmare and the resulting investigation next. Welcome back to The Exchange. Last week, Goldman Sachs revealed a CFPB probe into a range of customer complaints. And though it wasn't mentioned in the filing, CNBC.com reports the majority of Goldman's card loans and the resulting issues are from its Apple Card, which was launched in partnership with the tech giant about three years ago. Joining me now is the author of the piece, Hugh Sun. He's CNBC.com's banking reporter. Hugh, welcome. Fantastic reporting in here. And it's Amazing that two such high-profile companies could stumble so much out of the block. What went wrong here? Hey, Kelly, good to be here with you in person, especially. So, you know, you recall that the tagline for this product was created by Apple, not a bank. Uh, What that leaves out is that the servicing for this product is done by a bank. It's done by Goldman Sachs, and that's uh, the the cause of some issues that they had. So specifically, um, there's this rising trend uh, in the credit card industry called chargebacks. And what's a chargeback? That's when you, uh, you know, you go to your issuer and say, you know, either I didn't make that charge or, uh, you know, I received this product, but it was uh, subpar somehow. It wasn't as promised or even, you know, that's not me. That's ID theft, uh, that type of thing. So chargebacks are a big trend. Uh, Merchants hate it because they have to actually pony up for the refunds, that type of thing. So um, Goldman Sachs, as it turns out, was overwhelmed by the number of chargebacks. So what, and not not its fault. You say it's hmm. part of this is a pandemic trend where these this has been on the rise in general. It's just that they didn't expect the volume and the kinds of complaints, like you say, where someone said, "I had a bad experience." Yeah. Okay, well, I mean, it's classic customer service. And you know, 
Apple chose Goldman Sachs because they were a blank sheet. They could start this credit card platform on the cloud. They weren't going to be like Citi or Chase with a 25-year-old, 30-year-old credit card platform that wouldn't want to do the cool things that Apple Card can do. Now, on the other hand, you know, what that leaves is you know, Apple, that Goldman Sachs had automated a lot of the parts uh, for the front end of this. What that means is you know, I go to my iPhone, I, I could say very easily, I go into the iWallet and I say, this transaction, I, I didn't like that, boop, boop, boop and then you've disputed it, you've started a chargeback. What they didn't do, what they neglected to do, was automate the back end. So you know, when these co complaints come in, and they, they can be complex and nuanced to uh, adjudicate, uh, they didn't, they didn't uh, set up automation for that. They left that for later on. And as a result, you know, their service personnel were you know, struggling with uh, all these nuanced cases that sure. they didn't know how to do. In some cases, if you look at the Reddit forums, they've had people who said, you know, I provided uh, Goldman Sachs with evidence that this wasn't me. And yet they still sided after four months with, uh, you know, with the merchant in this case. Yeah, and, and the users have been saying, go to the CFPB with your complaints. At least that seems to have triggered some kind of response here. Interestingly enough, would you say this card has still been a success? I mean, for all of yeah. the complaints people have had and the challenges these two companies have faced, is there pretty wide adoption? I mean, what would we qualify as success? Yeah. And what do you think both of them will continue to invest in in terms of trying to, if they're still trying, build out this business. So yeah, we're stuck with uh, uh, imprecise figures because nobody actually uh, discloses how many users there are. Now, one uh, Cornerstone Advisors last year said that they doubled from something like three million to 6.4 million as of May of, of 21. You know, other folks I've, I've said that active and inactive users are closer to 10 million. Again, that's unconfirmed figure. Um, so it, it is a runaway success. And to be fair to them, you know, um, th there are people who say, even on Reddit, uh, you know, I've had a great experience. You know, I, I attempted to charge back and they credited me right away. So, you know, it just, it's the law of big numbers. They they've obviously uh, weren't prepared for the number of folks who adopted this figure. But to be clear, you know, Goldman Sachs wants to be big in consumer finance. So, you know, they have the GM card, they've got the Goldman Sachs, uh, uh, they've got the Apple card, excuse me, and you know, they're working on a Goldman Sachs proprietary card. They want to be big in this and they've got to fix this business. Yeah, this is part of the growing pains. Uh, and I'm sure there's plenty of people chuckling a little bit uh, to see this be this customer service problem be such an issue for them. Hugh, it's great reporting. Everyone should read the piece over on CNBC.com. Good to see you. Thank you, Kelly. Thanks. Our Hugh Sun. Still ahead, this commodity falling 20% since the end of May. One of our guests called the top right here on our air. We'll get his latest trades and what he calls the single most development in the market right now next after we come right back. Welcome back to The Exchange. Falling energy and commodity prices playing a huge part in that cooler CPI print this morning. And look, the XLE Energy ETF is down nearly 20% from its recent highs. And my next guest called that top back in May, setting up a long S&P 500 short energy pair trade. And it has certainly paid off. So what's his next move? Back for more is Carter Worth. He's the CEO of Worth Charting. Carter, it's good to have you. My, my observation is I'm nervous that you're not short energy anymore because I wonder if it means gasoline prices are about to go back up. But talk to me a little bit about what you're seeing on the charts here. Sure. And of course, uh, uh, thanks for remembering the good ones. We all have our duds. I have them in spades. But uh, <laughs> for so, so far, so good. The idea was that Energy was just so loved, right? The word or phrase overbought could could be implied. But when things get sort of so hated or so loved, from time to time, it's right to 
take the road less traveled. And now we have this big uh, relative underperformance in energy, um, some 1,400 basis points over basically uh, two, two and a half months. And so now I was just thinking, you know, I don't want to be short energy uh, relative to the S&P anymore, meaning that sort of opportunity has come and gone. I do think that there are things in the market that as was the case with energy versus the S&P, are interesting here in terms of inflection points. And one of those is small caps versus large cap. I noticed that. That was a day or two ago that jumped out at you. Why? Right. So now we we know that looking at a ratio is, some people say, esoteric and, and not relevant. But a ratio chart is simply a way of expressing relative strength. And small cap stocks uh, have underperformed for the better part of a year and now are starting to actually outperform the S&P. And so whether it's an overall bullish call on the market, some people think that's what it has to be, I would leave that aside. But I would say that the setup here, uh, that small cap is beta, um, and small cap is probably the better trade on a week-over-week basis. What about the broader market? Right. So what needs to be determined, and we're all trying to figure it out, and there are a lot of people on both sides, is the rally, the 14% move off of the low, just another counter trend, because we are in a downtrend since January, or is it somehow the beginning of something more enduring? My thinking is it remains just a counter trend. We've seen several, and this is, well, a little bit longer in terms of magnitude and duration. It's not a whole lot different. Um, but there are uh, many people starting to make the case, and they're entitled to do it, of course, that the lows are in. Uh, that's always tempting. I don't think we'll escape that easily. What about tech, where we've seen kind of a notable resurgence? I don't know if we'd go so far as to call it leadership, maybe, since early July? Well, that's right. And the rotation has been just the reciprocal of energy, right? You've seen materials and energy and others that were high flyers uh, really come apart. And you've seen a reciprocal move in sort of hated tech. And to some extent, that puts the market overall at a moment of equilibrium, right? Having drawn down some 25% from its peak and now rallied 14, 50% from its low, the market's almost halfway back uh, to the high point from the low. Now, while Fibonacci is not necessarily the answer to all things, a 50% recovery leaves the market at a level where maybe it belongs, and it's kind of a pair of twos. Last one, a grab bag for you. If I mention financials, healthcare, consumer, either discretionary or uh, uh, staples, which I know you've recently been less bullish on the staples, but do any of those sectors jump out to you as, as flashing obvious opportunities here? Well, of those choices, I would go with healthcare. Um, financials uh, have struggled, as we know, and healthcare has this dynamic where it's both offensive and defensive. It has defensive characteristics because of the large cap pharma and managed care, things like United Health, but it also has beta and cyclicality because of biotech. And so I would say that's pound for pound maybe the best idea of those three. All right, Carter, it's great to have you on. Uh, really appreciate so it today. Much. Yep, absolutely. Closing out one trade, putting on a few others. Carter Worth with Worth Charting. Coming up, Elon Musk selling another $7 billion worth of Tesla shares, despite saying in late April there were no further sales planned. What's behind the move? What does it reveal about the Twitter takeover? We'll dive into that next. And a quick check on markets with the Nasdaq now at session highs of 2.7%. The Dow just off session high levels, a strong market session all day. We're back in just a moment. Stay with us. 
Welcome back to The Exchange, everybody. Let's take a quick look at the markets. Uh, as I mentioned, Dow's up about 500 points and a quick check on shares of Tesla. We saw, obviously, last night the news of a major share sale by Elon Musk. This despite the fact that he had tweeted in late April that he was not planning any further share sales. Uh, look at the reaction, though, in the session today. Tesla shares are shaking off the share sale. Perhaps now you could say they're pricing that news event in. They're rising 3.5% to around $881. Don't know if we can zoom out uh, a little bit to kind of show the longer-term performance here, but this is a stock that was under severe pressure as Elon Musk's share sales remained an overhang. Here's the year-to-date, down 16.5% or so. So they have certainly stabilized and actually climbed to the upside in recent days as well. Now take a quick look at shares of Twitter. The speculation here, why would Musk be planning such a or executing such a large share sale? Perhaps if he is forced to fund his purchase of Twitter. That's up to the Delaware court. If they rule that he has to follow through on it, he would need the capital to do so. Shares of Twitter today reacting positively as well, growing nearly 3% to around $44. We'll keep an eye on both of these names uh, for you, uh, as I mentioned uh, that's the latest on share sales of Tesla and Twitter. And that's the latest for The Exchange as well, everybody. Thanks for tuning in. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and Starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.